you can think back to what computers were like in the uh, in, in the uh, early 90s. I went out to buy a computer, and I saw uh, what back then was uh, the Apple Macintosh when it was first released. And they had an encyclopedia running on the Macintosh. And um, I saw a video of these African tribesmen dancing. And there was song, and there was dance, and the video was probably the size of a postage stamp. It was teeny. But I saw that video, and for me, I had this amazing connection. I was mesmerized by this video that I saw these tribesmen from Africa singing and dancing in a postage stamp-sized video on a computer screen. And I said to myself, the whole world is going to be like this. How many of us remember clearly the moment we knew what it is we should do? Do I see a platform that allowed people to remotely be where they couldn't be? Today on Circle Back, Martin Rinkus, a forward thinker who should be proud he had his head in the clouds. Before there was even a cloud, we set out to create the world's first cloud surveillance company, and I don't even think cloud was a term back then. (laughs) From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, this is Circle Back, where we trace the life cycle of the startup from bright idea to big payoff. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. Since I was a little kid, I was always a creator. When I was young, I used to shoot Super 8. So I'd shoot with those little handheld film cameras. Like I shot a movie of like King Kong versus Godzilla and we had the plastic animals fighting each other. I mean, when you shot film and it came back from the lab, you were actually cutting pieces of plastic and taping them together. That's how you edited a movie. Uh, I'm Marty, Marty Rankus. Picture the young Marty Rankus, son of Lafayette immigrants, living a Wonder Years-era childhood in Erie, Pennsylvania. He's short in stature. When I graduated high school, I was five foot two. But he's got big ambition. Artsy with a sensible side. I also really enjoyed the process of sales. I mean, he is a little kid. I mean, everybody's done the lemonade stand. And I have this vivid memory in my mind when, so it would have been 1972, 1973, so I was 10, 11 years old, and I got this lemonade stand. I think I had like $12. I mean, I was killing it. It was 25 cents a cup, so I'm making really good money. Of course, I'm not worrying about my cost of goods. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I remember on the little transceiver radio, there was Bachman Turner Overdrive playing Taking Care of Business. I'm singing Taking Care of Business out loud, and I'm thinking to myself, this is awesome. This is great. I'm running my own business. And that was one of my earliest memories of being an entrepreneur. I went to college. I started out. So I said, okay, you know, I, I need to earn some money. I need to have a career. I need to have something that's, that's going to be valuable for me. And my dad was a chemical engineer. And I said, you know, I, I, I guess I'll try that out. 
I'll try chemistry out. So I went to Denison, in the middle of Ohio. Uh, great school, nice people there. And uh, I did fine. My grades were fine. I, I just didn't enjoy it at all. And I sat in on a, on a film class and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to make movies. And, you know, I told my dad and, and he, he, he gave me this, this look like, wait, what, what are you doing? I said, yeah, dad, I'm, I'm not doing chemistry anymore. I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to be a famous filmmaker. I'm going to make movies. It's going to be great. And uh, he, he kind of looked at me and he said, yeah, son, that's all great and good, but uh, I'm not paying for college. But then, you know, I thought about it and I said, okay, that's, that's fine. Uh, let, me, let me see what I'm going to do. So I asked him, I said, look, how about economics? I mean, that's kind of business side of things. I'm kind of interested in that. He said, that's fine. Economics is fine. But uh, one of the things that I, that I was really proud of myself that I did is I still had this passion for films. So at graduation, I didn't even tell my dad. So at graduation, we're, he's sitting in the audience, comes out. He said, let me see your, let me see your diploma, son. So uh, opens up the diploma, and there it says, you know, dual degree, economics and cinema. And he kind of looked at me and winked, and he was like, okay. And I was, I was glad I did that. It was, uh, it was an interesting experience for me. South speeds. Camera speeds. Two. Awesome. Take two. Mark. And action. I mean, who graduates from college and gets a job as an assistant director on a movie? I thought I hit the jackpot. Two weeks prior to graduation, when I thought I had the world uh, by a string, I get the call that, hey, this movie fell through, I didn't get the funding, I'm not going to make the movie, so you don't have a job. When a promised job with a foreign movie director fell through... Marty held on to his overseas plane ticket and turned that adventure into an impressive line on his resume. I flew to uh, Berlin and I decided I was gonna shoot a documentary film. So I bought a 16 millimeter film camera and uh, I shot a documentary there. I didn't even know what the documentary was gonna be about, but I lived there in, in Berlin and I ended up deciding to shoot a documentary film about runaways living in Berlin. I met these really cool people, and they're from all parts of Germany, and they're living in this uh, amazing city. And at that point, Berlin was a city surrounded by a communist country. I shot all this documentary uh, video, interviewing these kids and understanding what their lives were like, and uh, ended up producing that into a, a movie. It was about 30 minutes long. The Berlin International Film Festival brings East and West together. The GDR has entered the DEFA film. And that movie ended up in the Berlin Film Festival. So I was very lucky I got to come back to Berlin and, and be part of the Berlin Film Festival and show the movie. Um, but at the time, for me, it was, a, it was a creative outlet. You know, I got to make a movie after, <laughs> after everything I went through in college. Marty was learning how to sell and how to satisfy the toughest customer of them all. I had closed my first sale and I was feeling pretty good about things. I came in and I said, hey, dad, so I just got back from my trip, uh, uh, closed my first sale. I'm excited about things are going. You know, he kind of looked up and he said, he said, son, you know, what do you want, a medal? And uh, I, I, 
I thought, wow, okay. Marty spent a few years in New York editing and starting his own production company. It was close to the movie biz, but not close enough. And his timing was off, except for one brush with future greatness. I, uh, I worked with a fellow who knew uh, Ethan and Joel Cohen, and those guys were the Cohen brothers. If you don't know them, they've done some amazing movies from Raising Arizona, Blood Simple, and, and on. Uh, but they had just shot their trailer for Blood Simple. These are filmmakers, and they're entrepreneurs, and, and they're building a prototype, and they're showing that prototype to investors and saying, this is what we can do. This is the kind of movie we can make. I didn't get to meet Ethan, but I got to meet Joel, and he was phenomenally kind and very open and generous with his time. Uh, he told me everything. He told me how much money he was spending on his trailer. He told me how much money he needed to raise. He told me how hard everything was. Uh, he told me how nervous he was about even building that trailer and, and making the movie and I really was very inspired by what the Coen brothers did. And it was, it was really a fantastic experience to see people like that and how they made it and how they became successful in the, in the film business. And um, I had my fun in New York City. I got to do some amazing things and experience uh, a lot of what a big city has to offer. I felt it was time for, for me to move on. And I had talked to my dad and, you know, he said, you know, now's a great time to come back to Erie. Why don't you come work with me? And uh, my dad was a chemical engineer, ran a plastics company. And um, he said, why don't you come, come work with me? We'll get you into sales. You can manage some accounts. And I gave it a shot. I was in sales. Uh, I traveled a lot. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed meeting people on the road. Uh, one of my territories was Nashville. So I got to develop these relationships, got to know uh, Nashville, had my first meet and three, and uh, slowly fell in love with this city. This is about the same time Marty saw that early Mac computer. Remember the video of the African dancers? And I said to myself, everything's gonna be on computers. Video's gonna be everywhere. I just knew it in my heart, and I thought, this is 10 years from now. This is going to be part of our everyday lives. You've got to build it yourself. You, gotta, you have to be responsible for what your outcome is. And um, it, was, uh, it was tough working with my dad, uh, but at the same time, I, I learned quite a bit. And I think that was, you know, one of the reasons after working with him for a, a little over a year that it was time for me to move on. I loaded up my pickup truck, left Erie, Pennsylvania, and came here, came here to Nashville. I was looking for opportunities in the digital media space. This is where I knew I wanted to be. I knew that the future was going to be in this area, in software, and video, and computers. Uh, I met a person at Merchant's uh, Restaurant one evening, and we started talking, and he worked for Bridgestone Tire. And we started talking about what I was interested in, and I started talking about digital media 
And he said, hey, I am in charge of training people at Bridgestone Tire. And when I have to train people, I have to shut down the production line. And obviously, we're not making tires at that point. I have to shut down the production line, bring people off, get them trained on what they have to get trained on. It might be like lockout, tagout. Like, how do you safely manage equipment so people don't get hurt? So it was, it was a lot of lost time. It was inefficient. So we talked, and I told him, I said, what if you had a piece of software that ran on a computer and you can take the people off the production line one at a time and they f- sit in front of the computer and they get shown videos, they get asked questions and they answer those questions and you can prove that they know the information. And instead of shutting everything down, bringing everybody into a big room, that you could take them and sit them in front of the computer uh, and all of this would be tracked automatically. And... Um, He said, yes, that's fantastic. Where is this? And I said, it doesn't exist. (laughs) I said, I'll make it for you. And he said, okay, why don't you come down and present this idea to us? So um, I built a PowerPoint uh, of what I thought this software would look like. And it had to be not just the software for training the people on a certain topic, but software that helped them create their own training programs. That's kind of unique about this. And I said, this is software that allow you to create your own training programs on whatever you want it to be. Uh, And I went down to Bridgestone Tire and I presented this PowerPoint. I said, this is the software. This is what it's going to look like. Now, don't forget, I'm not an engineer. I don't have a technical background. I don't know how to write software. This is not what I do. But I do understand what customers want. So I presented this idea uh, down at Bridgestone Tire, and I got to the end, and there were five people sitting in front of me at Bridgestone, and I, uh, I said, well, what do you guys think? And they said, this is fantastic. I said, how much? How much is this going to cost? I, I had no idea. I didn't even think about price. I'm going in there making a sales pitch, and I didn't have price in my head even. So off the top of my head, I said, $20,000. And they said, Okay. So I walked out of Bridgestone first thinking, boy, did I underprice that. Uh, and, then, and then second, I was thinking, how the hell am I going to build this damn thing? So uh, I come back. I called Microsoft. And back in those days, you could actually call Microsoft in Seattle, and they picked up the phone. Hello, Microsoft. And I said, hey, I need a software developer. Uh, I got a project. And they said, okay, great. Here's five software developers in Nashville. I said, fantastic. So I interviewed all these software developers, and um, I found one I liked, very talented uh, young man. And I said, look, I said, I got this project. What do you think? He goes, yeah, we can build that. That's fantastic. So we built this interactive training program, and uh, that program ended up becoming TrainerSoft. But back then, it was a project for Bridgestone Tire. And what I thought to myself, I said, this can be turned into a product that I can sell to other people. This platform, this piece of software allows people to create their own training programs. This is something that I think lots of people could use. So I made sure when I had my document that I sold this to them that I retained all rights to the software. It was my software. They they licensed it. So we built that for them. And that was the beginning of TrainerSoft. And I went door to door, knocking on doors. Like I just showed up at Batesville Casket. I showed up at Carrier Air Conditioner, all on the same street that Bridgestone was on. 
I just drove up to the parking lot, knocked on the door and said, hey, can I talk to your head of training? And they said, this is fantastic. How much is this? And I said, $5,000. They said, okay, that's great. We'll take one. So I was selling this software for $5,000. And I start, this started growing. And that became the beginning of what TrainerSoft was. By the time the company reached its peak, we had sold training software to 25% of the Fortune 500. We were the second largest training software out there uh, in the market. We had 40 employees. We were an Inc. 500 company. Uh, we were running about $2.5 million in sales every year. Uh, and we had customers from, from Harvard, I had mentioned Bridgestone. We had customers all across the country, all kinds of customers, from small businesses to large businesses, from Boeing and Lockheed Martin uh, to the U.S. government. Uh, it was a great business. He called that business Trainersoft, and it started to take off. But you know what they say about all work and no play. When we come back, another case of a good idea meets good timing. Two years after moving into Nashville, I met my beautiful wife. She was on the date with another guy. <laughs> I want to take a quick moment and invite you to listen to one of our new shows, Twin Day. It's all about rethinking entrepreneurship. In Kiswahili, Twin Day means let's go. And it's our rally cry here at the EC for Founders of Color. This show shares the name with our statewide program dedicated to leveling the playing field for Black and Latinx founders. We'll bring in guests to engage in open and honest conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. In each episode, you'll hear from successful founders and entrepreneurial innovators of color who take the time to circle back to share peaks and valleys of their journeys. We'll also illuminate the hurdles and opportunities that exist within the larger world of startups, venture capital, and business more broadly. Join us and get the latest updates at ec.co slash twindaypodcast. Now, back to the show. We met at Svoozie's. So Svoozie's was an old bar on Broadway near Vanderbilt. I got her number. She got my number. I didn't even know she was on a date. I lost her phone number. I had the business card of the guy she was on a date with. So I called him and I said, hey, do you have Laura's phone number? And he said, why? I said, well, I just wanted to give her a call. I'd like to see her again. And uh, he said, let me talk to her and I'll get back to you. Now that is a Southern gentleman. He called her, called me back and gave me her number. After 27 years, we're still married. I'm what they call a damn Yankee. I guess everybody knows what a Yankee is. A damn Yankee is a Yankee who comes down South, marries a Southern gal and stays. Though his wife was a Nashville native, she agreed to move to Raleigh. 
Nashville back then really wasn't as open and inviting and warm as it was for new business and growing businesses. It really wasn't amenable for high tech. So I'm in, I'm in the software business and I'm in Nashville. And back at that point in the early 90s, really wasn't a place to, to build a software company. He spent a few years in North Carolina. Trainersoft had typical startup hiccups, but was doing well. Then Marty began to envision something new, downright futuristic, something Walter Cronkite had described in the 60s for the House of Tomorrow. Let's push our imaginations ahead and visit the home of the 21st century. As we approach, our arrival could be observed by an automatic closed-circuit television system, which would notify our host. We started delivering e-learning over the internet. So the internet was nascent back then. I mean, this was the er early days. As I looked at this technology that allowed people to create a training program in a web browser and then share that with other people, again, it comes back to that fascination with video. It kept coming back in my mind. And I started thinking, okay, what's 10 years out? What does the world look like 10 years from now? And 10 years from now, do I see a world where people are remotely monitoring their homes or businesses? Or that video cameras can be used for keeping an eye on anything, anywhere. And all of this could be accessed over the internet. And I said, yes. I wrote a business plan. And in the business plan was, we're gonna build some hardware, we're going to have a service on the internet, and we're gonna allow people to make their homes and businesses safer. And you had to have a dot-com because everything was dot-com. And my brain's just going, okay, you know, video, video surveillance, see things, see view, clear views. As soon as I come up with the idea, I type it into the type it in the web browser and see if it's available. Come up with the idea, type it in the web browser. I mean, it was hours and hours and hours of doing this and very frustrating because every domain's taken. People were buying domains just to hold on to them. It was very frustrating. And then SmartView popped in my head and I typed it in. It says smartview.com, available for sale. So I think I bought that domain for $12 uh, back then. So our company name was SmartView, and the product name was CloudView, C-L-O-U-D-V-U-E. The hardware was a camera in a box. So there was a box that you plugged into the printer port on your computer. That box wirelessly communicated with a camera, and you could have up to four cameras in your house or your business. I raised $135,000 to launch this company from, from angel investors, from family, from friends, um, small amounts, $5,000, $10,000. And at that point, I was taking all the money I was earning from Trainersoft and dumping it back in the company. Being that far ahead of the curve was inspiring. It was amazing. We'd show this technology to people. They go, oh, my gosh, I can remotely monitor my house and I'm not there. And these are wireless cameras. I don't have to mount a camera on the wall. I just plug the damn thing in. That was a fantastic sales pitch and people got excited. I said, this is amazing. This technology is gonna change the world. We even won Best to Show at the Consumer Electronics Show in 1999. You might be thinking, 
14 years later, we heard this TV pitch from someone else. Sharks, wouldn't it have been nice to know who was behind the door before you let me in? With my product, you can. My name is Jamie Siminoff. I'm from Los Angeles, California. My product is the DoorBot. You've got companies like Ring that were started way after we were started and ended up being acquired by Amazon. And I definitely have a bone of jealousy there. I mean, I think it's amazing what they did and what they accomplished. I look back and I say, okay, as an entrepreneur, was I creating technology for technology's sake? Was I creating technology that I thought was amazing and not as focused on the business model side of it? Was this a vision and not a business? I don't know. Well, let's consider all that SmartView did do quite impressively. Oh my gosh, we had some really interesting customers. So for example, we did the surveillance at the King of Jordan's house. We did surveillance at the Masters Golf Tournament. We did surveillance at some museums. We had some niche markets that picked this product up. It did okay. It certainly didn't take off the way we all thought it was going to, but it did okay. Some certain some certain applications of our product were absolutely people couldn't run wires. People wanted to have a camera that was pretty far away, but they couldn't run a wire. We solved that problem. Uh, uh, antique buildings, museums. And we had a little online store, and uh, one of my team members comes in and goes, Marty, Marty, we got a $40,000 credit card order. I said, what? $40,000 credit card order on our website. So that's that's crazy. I don't even I think we have enough inventory for that. Yeah, it's being it's being shipped to uh, Palo Alto. And I go, oh, that's the middle of Silicon Valley. You know, who is this person? It's uh, Andy Rubin. So one of our one of our first big customers was Andy Rubin. And if you don't know who Andy Rubin is, he invented Android. So as the company was growing, we still had the vision of video everywhere. But we pivoted from just being a company that sold some cameras to a company that sold this amazing technology it had built. So we had built this platform that worked in the cloud to manage video. And we received through the internet a little lead form that somebody filled out from a company called Time Warner Cable. So Time Warner Cable filled out a form on our website. I got them on the phone. They said, hey, we're looking to provide video surveillance for our residential customers. Would you come up and talk to us? So came up to Time Warner Cable, met with them, and they said, this is fantastic. This is exactly what we need. So we inked a deal with Time Warner Cable, a multi-million dollar deal. So we became the back-end video surveillance for uh, the second largest cable company in the United States. So cameras were going in by the tens of thousands in homes all across America. We were uploading more video every day to the cloud than YouTube did worldwide. 72 million minutes of surveillance video were going up to the cloud every single day on our cloud. And then our entire system shut down. Everything shut down. No one could access their cameras. Video wasn't being recorded in the cloud. Nothing worked. It was Microsoft's fault. Of course, Time Warner calls up and says, hey, 
nothing's working. It's completely stopped. And of course, we called Microsoft and 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 they said, well, oh, we're having this problem. And we tell Time Warner Cable, hey, it's Microsoft's fault. And they go, we don't care whose fault it is. We're paying you. So it's your fault. You need to figure it out. But I remember that day because I thought we finally worked so hard for so long to get to this scaling point and we're going to lose it all. We're going to lose it all. They're going to shut the whole thing down. They told us they were going to shut it down. But we got it back up in about 12 hours. As the internet got better, business got better. We were inside of garage door openers. We were inside of Best Buy's camera. So Ryobi made a garage door opener and had a camera in it. So you can see if anybody was in your garage, if your cars were in your garage, if anything funky was happening in your garage. We had a, a great team of people that were out looking for opportunities. By 2002, the Rankis family was back in Nashville. One main reason, and that is that my wife is from Nashville. Her parents are here, and we had just had a baby. Now, the full focus is on SmartView. Over the next decade, he'll be selling and fine-tuning hardware systems. And despite poor market results, investors would help keep things afloat. We're, uh, we're moving along at a, at a great clip. We have the opportunity to scale this business, the opportunity to pull on other customers in the telco business, cable business. We decided we needed a more significant amount of capital to scale the company. One of my board members said, there's this company, Fortress, you should talk to them. And I said, I think Fortress is a $50 billion you know, investment bank. I don't know why they'd want to talk to us. And they said, well, they've created this uh, new vehicle to um, loan money against patent portfolios. I said, okay, that sounds interesting. So as equity holders, we wouldn't have the dilution and that we could take this debt guaranteed against our patents and help grow the company. So I think the board was excited about this. They thought it made sense. I thought it made sense. Um, Fortress looked at our patent portfolio and um, they believed our patent portfolio was worth uh, somewhere in the range of $70 million. I said, look, we'll lend you $15 million against your patent portfolio. I said, okay. We had some covenants in that loan that we had to hit when it came to revenue, margin, growth. And our first year, we blew it out of the water. We were killing. Revenue was growing, margins were growing, everything was going in a great clip. Uh, year two, year two, we lost our largest customer. So we lost Time Warner Cable. Time Warner Cable was buying Comcast boxes and they were buying all these other services from Comcast. And they decided to switch to, uh, they decided to switch to Comcast. I went back to the, uh, to the bank, but I went back to Fortress and I said, okay guys, look, we've lost the largest customer, but um, we're gonna be okay. We have these other customers coming on board. I've downsized uh, the company and um, 
they were not willing to adjust the covenant on the loan. At that point, it was either raise more money uh, or sell the company. And the board decided at that point that we should probably try to sell the company. We had interest from uh, a number of organizations and ultimately sold to uh, Johnson Controls. And the only investor made whole is Fortress. Everyone else loses. And about the same time SmartView fails, the Ring doorbell sells to Amazon for more than a billion dollars. The e-commerce giant announced yesterday it has officially closed the deal to buy the home security device company Ring. Ring, founded in 2013, has more than 3 million users. It's best known as a smart doorbell maker. Overall, this wasn't the outcome I certainly wanted, and it wasn't the outcome that all my investors had wanted. But the outcome did pay back debt, and the outcome did keep all of our jobs and take this technology to the next step. So most of the debt holders didn't get the return. And that's still something that I wish we were able to accomplish. I don't have a regret. I'm proud of what I did. I think what we accomplished was pretty amazing to build a video platform as big as ours got, that the vision was fulfilled. Was it successful as a business? It really wasn't. Was it successful as a technology? Oh, damn yeah. Marty Rinkus is still working and still inventing at Johnson Controls. I've been very lucky to be in, an, in a position as an entrepreneur, in, uh, as an intrapreneur inside of Johnson Controls. So I've, I've been given a unique opportunity to create new technologies and launch, launch innovations and invent the future of physical security at Johnson Controls. As for Trainersoft, his first brainstorm, he sold the company, but the technology is alive and well. And IBM is still selling our software today. They're still selling the Trainersoft software. It's under a different name, I think. Uh, but I'm really proud that this piece of technology that we created so many years ago uh, is still being used today to help people create learning programs and help people educate each other and make themselves better. There's a great quote from the uh, inventor of the artificial heart, Jacob Chavitz. An entrepreneur uh, is a, a person with a vision who has absolutely no idea the odds against them. And I felt like that the whole time. You've been listening to Circle Back. To subscribe, visit ec.co slash circleback. 
and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circle Back is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, thank you to our media partner, Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Kaladimos. And a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. <laughs>